Good morning, everybody. Thanks for having me here. I have nothing to disclose because I just recently graduated from fellowship. Um, so today we'll be uh, talking about drug allergy uh, relevant in the pediatric population. Um, here is the outline of what we'll be discussing. We'll go over some basic science about uh, what is drug allergy, uh, some strict definitions. Uh, we'll focus most of the talk on reactions to uh, penicillin or beta-lactam uh, antibiotic group because that's the most common that we see both inpatient and outpatient. We'll go over some reactions to non-beta-lactam antibiotics that tend to occur less frequently. And we'll also uh, talk, just briefly go over a few agents that are non-antibiotic uh, reactions as well. So it's important to classify uh, drug reactions, adverse drug reactions, into two categories. Most drug reactions are non-allergic, and then falls under the type A reactions. They are predictable and they are expected to occur because that's what the medicines do. For example, liver toxicity from Tylenol overdose, um, GI bleed from you know, excessive use of NSAIDs, all these fall under type A predictable because you don't need a susceptible population necessarily to have these adverse outcomes. Allergic reactions fall under type B reactions and they're unpredictable and they're unexpected and they occur in susceptible patients. Allergic are the ones that are immunized by uh, um, antibody mediated, so we'll go over that uh, in more in detail. Um, drug intolerance can occur uh, due to side effect at the therapeutic dose in certain patients. So not, they're not necessarily allergic, but some patients, they take an augmentin for a sinus infection, but they have such profound nausea, they can't tolerate the medicine, you have a different one. So that's still a type B reaction, but it's one of non-allergic variety. And there are certain patients who have what we call pseudo-allergic reactions. Now they have real anaphylaxis and um, they behave, you know, they need epinephrine, they get treated like they have allergic reaction. However, these are non-IG mediated. Uh, it really comes from a direct stimulation of mast cell release, which we'll go over a little bit more later. So majority of adverse drug reactions are type A reactions. True allergic reactions, which is the type B reactions, really make up less than 10% of all drug reactions. Uh, most common drug uh, causing true allergic reaction is the beta-lactam antibiotic, both in the adult and the pediatric population. So the different types of type B reactions, um, type one, which would be the focus of the talk, um, is IgE-mediated. And it's, but uh, it uh, behaves um, the same way as if you're allergic to pollen, or if you're allergic to animal dander, you need sensitization. So up on first exposure, you have a, you take the drug, you have the allergen, you have your different antigen pre presenting cells here, the dendritic cell that grabs on the allergen, presents it to a naive T cells, then links with the B cell, then you make IgE. Now you have a mast cell that have the IgE uh, bound to it. Um, the next time or re-exposure, you know, when they take the medicine, the second time they'll have fire or degranulation of these mast cells, uh, which leads to allergic reactions. So you have immediate uh, mediators, the lipid mediators, you also have delayed uh, cytokine release. And 
on the lower right corner is where you see the wheel, the flare can illustrate in the type of reaction. So the bump is the wheel, the flare is a redness. So you have vasodilation, you have edema, all these are immediate uh, from, from IgE uh, induced. Uh, we won't go over the other types as much because uh, they're not as commonly seen and they're not IgE mediated. So type two or cytotoxic type B reactions is IgG antibody mediated. So here you have um, uh, complement um, uh, activation uh, from, uh, from antibody deposition. So here you take a drug uh, like heparin and the drug induces hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia is a neutropenia. Here you have direct tissue injury uh, that doesn't require the presence of IgE. Type three is kind of like type two. It's also uh, antibody mostly IgG driven, but here you have the drug directly binding to the IgG, uh, drug specific IgG. This complex is uh, what gets deposited in the vessels that cause vasculitis, that causes uh, you know, Arthur's reaction, causes serum sickness. And finally, type 4 reaction is the basis for when we do a TB uh, skin test. It's more delayed. And now these are mediated for, uh, by different uh, cells, your macrophage, your eosinophils, your neutrophils, as well as your cytotoxic CD8 T cells. And here, you, uh, upon re-exposure, you have a delayed uh, uh, reaction. Here, these you, you tend to see more um, uh, contact dermatitis, so the patient uh, you know, applies a topical drug. They initially do fine, but 12 hours, 24 hours later, they have blistering, they have skin peeling, they have burning, uh, and, and, you know, and the rash can last for seven to 14 days because the T cells tend to stay there for a while. And though these, you can also see these with delayed uh, cutaneous drug eruptions as well. So why do certain patients re have drug reactions? So there are two um, mechanisms that propose that explain why certain patients initially tolerate the medicine, but when they take it the second time they have reaction, and why certain patients react right away. So the first mechanism is the heptan theory. A lot of these drugs are small, so they're low molecular weight drugs, and they by themselves don't induce a reaction. It's only when they're broken down, they bind to a, uh, a, a carrier protein in the body, and now it's big enough of a complex to both induce and elicit a response. So once they, the drug heptan binds to the carrier protein, then it gets presented to the, to the cell surface. There you have interaction with IgE, Ig receptor, leading to uh, production of specific uh, antibodies and this as well mast cell activation. So this is the whole concept of sensitization, then subsequent exposure you have a, a reaction. Now the Pi concept uh, is very interesting. This explains why certain susceptible individuals, when they take the medicine for the first time, like uh, uh, a a, a capavir, uh, or back from the first time, they have a rash, they have urticaria. That's because we all have certain uh, HLA classes, and when you have a, it's almost like you have the lock that's just the right size for the key to unlock a reaction. So certain patients with uh, certain HLA phenotypes, their group on their MHC class on their cells are just the right fit for the drug to directly fit into to act as a super antigen 
to directly stimulate allergic response. Here you have Bactrim kind of fitting right in the groove of these MHC classes causing uh, direct uh, allergic response. So it bypasses the need for a drug sensitization. So when approaching a patient uh, with drug allergy, uh, history and risk factors uh, are very important to take into consideration. So most IgE immediate reactions occur within minutes exposure. Most occur in less than an hour. Um, it, it, it's like a party, but the party ends and the symptoms go away. Um, Urticaria and angioedema are the most common symptoms. Bronchospasm and anaphylactic shock can occur in more severe cases. The risk factors to consider is talking to the patient. So prior reaction history, uh, history of ATP, um, all are risk factors, as well as there is a slightly higher risk in females compared to males, and certain genetic predisposition uh, do increase your risk as well. Um, reactions tend to be less common in young infants and elderly. It's really young people that tend to have the most response, res robust responses. Re other risk factors are the drug property themselves. Um, I have mentioned that in the, uh, the Hapton theory, a lot of drugs are small. They need a carrier protein to induce. So the larger molecular weight, the drugs, uh, ones, protein, polysex, tend to be more immunogenic. Um, IV sub-Q routes are more immunogenic than oral route. Uh, larger doses, longer duration therapy all increase your risk of sensitization. And also, uh, more frequent use of the same drug can also cause uh, uh, sensitization. Certain patients, um, uh, immunodeficient patients, uh, C, uh, CF patients, patients uh, that need chronic prolonged repeated antibiotic courses tend to uh, get uh, uh, higher risk, especially if they need longer courses of IV for weeks and months at a time. And if you have a concurrent viral infection, you slightly increase your risk of allergic response as well. So now breaking down the different antibiotic classes, um, beta-lactam is a pretty big group, right? They are defined by the, by the beta-lactam ring. Um, they all have different R1 groups, and we'll go over you know, most of the reactions, not so much to the ring, but it's to the R1 group on the different beta-lactams that kind of define their unique properties and characteristics. So most commonly, you know, we use a lot of penicillin-like and cephalosporin antibiotics. You have your carbapenems and monobactams. And in the non-beta-lactam groups, you have your um, sulfa drugs, you have your uh, clindamycins, like the macrolides, you have aminoglycosides, and also like vancomycin. The immediate reactions uh, include uh, significant itching. Patients often tell that they'll first say, hey, my back itches, I have diffuse itching. They'll appear flushed. They'll start having these uh, discrete wheels, high of appearing, um, that, that can appear in any part of the body. It, as far as angioedema, commonly you'll see lip swelling, facial swelling, hand and feet swelling. Um, they'll start to have bronchospasm, but also they can have GI symptoms. Patients can start vomiting and they can you know, endorse up, more upward GI than lower GI symptoms. And more severe cases, they can go to hypotension and shock. Um, delay reactions are tricky. Um, you can also have urticaria. Sometimes it's not atypical for a patient to have uh, diffuse hives several hours after, uh, after the initial, uh, taking the drug initially. Um, more nonspecific presentation um, are they get a morbilliform rash, they get these maculopapular rashes. In more severe cases, um, 
they get severe cutaneous presentation like Stevens-Johnson, as well as drug reaction with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms or DRESS. So these are more severe cases that are non-classic um, allergic-mediated uh, reactions, but they're very severe, tend to see more inpatient. Um, these are some pictures from up to date. You know, you have a, uh, these, the top two are, 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 are drug eruptions, so they have this class, uh, single lesion uh, uh, drug eruption. Dress tends to be more diffuse. They're almost vasculitis appearing and they tend to be quite painful. Um, Steven Johnson syndrome, you, you tend to see, you know, uh, when you see bolus appearing vesicles, it's obviously very serious and we call it dermatology. Um, and this is more of a serum signix like a diffuse urticarial plaques. So a very common scenario we see uh, at, at our office is a patient that's taken antibiotic uh, years ago for a for infection, and sometime into the course they had a reaction. They either had a diffused rash, they were so itchy, you know, they had to stop the medication, and then it's been five, ten years later. Uh, families want to know, can she, you know, can the patient take penicillin? Um, what about cephalosporins if she's allergic to penicillin? So we'll answer some of these questions in the next few slides. <laughs> when approaching a penicillin allergy, um, it's important to um, uh, know that anaphylactic reactions are rare, but they do occur. You know, one to four episodes per 10,000 administrations. Um, and out of these, really the most ones you want to worry about are penicillin moxicillin. So the beta-lactams tend to cause more severe reactions because we prescribe more of them. There's more people that are sensitized. History is a very poor predictor of true allergy. Patients are unable to recall specific details and it's fair, you know, it's, I can't remember what I did yesterday. So, you know, you can ask the patient to tell you what, what they did fit five years ago. What was the reaction? What was the duration? You get a sort of a general picture and and you, make, you know, don't base your decision just based on the pace issue because they're vague and it, it's unreliable. And patients can lose their sensitization over time. If you don't take the medicine for 10 years, four out of five patients will lose the sensitivity so they could be no longer allergic. And reasons for evaluation, alternative antibiotics are more toxic and more expensive and they lead more uh, risk of bacterial resistance. So when, um, how do we do skin tests or what, what, when are they helpful? So they're most accurate for the penicillin groups, the beta-lactam antibiotic. The, those are the most well-studied. There's the most robust data be, behind the most specific negative predictive value. They're not really used for type two and type three reactions. So a patient has a drug-induced hemolytic anemia, they have a hit or if they have um, the serum sickness reactions, because they're not IgE mediated. So the, the skin test, you can skin test anybody, but uh, it wouldn't give you as much information about negative predictive value of the test. It's safe to use in kids and um, it has good negative predictive value for the type one reactions. So what are we testing for when we are doing a skin testing? Well, we're, we're the picture the picture of the penicillin structure. You're not really testing for the beta-lactam ring itself because those, those are a common feature of all beta-lactam antibiotics. You're really testing for that R1 group. Um, and for most penicillins, the major determinant uh, called pre-pen or penicillial polylysine on the R1 group 
is the, the main culprit. It's a more common uh, major allergen. The minor allergens we test well, they're harder to obtain. Uh, they're called the MDM, the minor determinants. What we typically test for is PEN-G uh, uh, as the minor, but there's some other ones that, you know, that increases your sensitivity that they do sometimes in Europe. But here we do basically pre-PEN and PEN-G. Those are the two different R groups on the beta-lactam antibiotics that you can test for. So what entails a skin test? Because I have, you know, families that come in and say, hey, doc, we're ready. You know, it's, it, it's a four-year-old boy. You know, you're not going to skin test that kid. You know, he's going to kick you and he's not going to like you to say, uh, but it, you know, you, you, it, what does it involve? So I always tell patients, um, it's useful in confirming type one reactions, right? If they had a, uh, allergic, if they, if they had high, they had rash, they had trouble breathing. Yeah, we should probably test them. Um, it's not useful for predicting non-IG immediate reactions. Um, and people ask, well, what about ordering the serum, the blood work, you know, the blood work does have the pen G and, and amoxicillin, it's not as accurate. It's about 50% uh, 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 sensitivity. So quite a bit worse than skin tests. It's just not as uh, accurate in predicting whether someone's outgrown their allergy or not. I, I don't think they have them on a pre-pen, but regardless, the, the serum testing for uh, penicillin isn't as accurate. Here's an article published by uh, the Mayo Clinic uh, several years back. They looked at a fairly large population of pediatric patients who are suspected of having penicillin allergy. And they wanted to look at the safety and the validity of skin testing in children with penicillin allergy. They did skin testing using um, prepen, which is a major allergen, PEN-G, which is a minor allergen, and amoxicillin, um, and another minor allergen, penicillin. And they define the positive reaction. So when you do skin tests, you do scratch tests, and then you do intradermal testing, kind of like a TB skin test. Um, so two rounds. So they define, you define a positive reaction as anything that's three millimeter uh, wheel that's greater than the control. They looked at close to 80 uh, patients, and the mean age varied from two to eight. About 8% of patients tested positive uh, that were suspected of a, a penicillin allergy, and half of those patients tested positive to the major allergen, which is the pre-pen. Pre and here you can see in table two, uh, all of those that tested positive, most of them, um, um, 30 of the 60 basically were to the major determined. The rest of them were to the different minor determined in the pre-pen. What you see here, um, Column, uh, row number five, cefazolin made up only two of the 66, kind of confirming that most people are would test positive to the penicillin-like, but cephalosporin allergy is much rare and more to the first generation cephalosporins. So of those uh, that had the negative skin test, they proceeded to a, uh, a drug challenge, which you know you give them medicine, and um, uh, three less than 5% of those patients had acute drug reactions. So most of the patients uh, uh, tolerated the, the drug reaction without, uh, tolerated the drug challenge without uh, uh, any issues. So again, confirming that it's pretty accurate. So it's about 95%. Here is some literature in the, um, uh, in the uh, adult inpatient site uh, showing that Penicillin skin testing does have effect in reducing 
antibiotic use, more broad spectrum. So of the patients that once they had a negative pen skin test, you can see that the use of uh, vancomycin, uh, fluoroquinolones, macrolides, significantly reducing the inpatient setting. So when to test. Um, it's more effective when, to, when and where to test. It's more effective when they're scheduled electively. Uh, healthy patients in the health, uh, outpatient setting is ideal. Uh, inpatient setting usually should be avoided for several reasons. One, it's difficult preparing the concentrates. You have to dilute down the, um, you have to prepare both uh, uh, the major and the minor allergen of the penicillin, which is not always readily available. The patient usually is acutely sick and they may be taking medications that interfere with the testing result, especially if they've taken Benadryl or any antihistamine beforehand. That'll really suppress your uh, reaction, which makes the test less valid. And it's a lot of times better to use alternative antibiotics if available, because the last time, last thing the patient wants to do when they're inpatient sick is getting poked five times. So when to conduct a challenge? So. The skin test is really helpful for penicillin-like antibiotics, but there isn't as much literature on the negative predictive value of these non-beta-lactam antibiotics, you know, the vancomycins, the macrolides. It's just not as well-defined. So in these cases, conducting a drug challenge, a graded format, is helpful in confirming if the patient is no longer allergic. It's, it has fairly high negative predictive value when the patient passes the drug challenge without any issues. So you give them medicine. If an hour later they don't show any signs of cutaneous GI respiratory symptoms, they're not likely to be allergic. Um, when do you not do the challenge when the patient has had previous severe cutaneous reactions? So if they've had Stevens-Johnson, TN, DRESS, they're gonna, should be avoided for, for life and those you don't want to re-challenge them because they're likely going to have another severe reaction. And if the patient has poorly controlled uh, uh, asthma or COPD, you don't also want to challenge because it can significantly uh, drop their IVP1. What about desensitization? You know, what is it? When should we do it? Um, ideally, when there are no alternative treatment options because it's very involved and um, time-consuming for the patient. Um, it results in temporary tolerance of, tolerance of the medication. So it can take you know, anywhere from three to six hours depending on how sensitive the patient is. So you essentially give them a small incremental doses of the medicine they're allergic to until they'll build a tolerance. However, during this course, patients likely will have symptoms. So you have to be prepared to treat, treat breakthrough symptoms with either antihistamines or steroids to kind of get them through these reactions to promote tolerance. And once the drug is stopped, their sensitivity returns. Most often, if they miss the medicine for 48 hours, they're probably regaining the allergy to it. And again, it's not effective for all types of drug allergy. It's most effective for the type one. If, if they had a true allergic reaction, you can desensitize, desensitize them, but it won't prevent serum sickness. It won't prevent severe cutaneous reactions. So the second part is, for this for patient I mentioned earlier, is well, they're not penicillin allergic, what about cephalosporins? So cross-reactions, which we'll go over a little bit, is fairly rare. So what you're looking at is the R1 group on the cephalosporin and the penicillin R group. So you're trying to avoid cephalosporins that have the identical R chain as the penicillin if they reacted to, to avoid cross-reactivity. 
It's very low and probably overestimating previous reports. I think it's been about 5%. In reality, it's probably even less than 5%. The reactions related to similarities on the R1 side chain of uh, the cephalosporin. Cross-reactivity is more common with earlier generation. You really see it with uh, first and second generations. Once you get down to like ceftriaxone or cefepine in the third, fourth generation, it's much, much more rare. It's probably less than 2%. It does happen. We don't want to ignore it. So when you when you're you know when we're asked oh, what can we use the patients are reacted to amoxicillin you know we in the inpatient what should we do if they absolutely need a cephalosporin you pick one that's not in the same column so these are a variety of different cephalosporins that share the same r1 chain if they reacted to one you, you probably save to pick a one that's not in the same column that has a different r chain What about non-beta-lactam antibiotics? These are less common. They tend to be not as allergenic. Uh, a question we commonly get asked is, what about you know, the, the bigger guns, the carbopenems? Can we use them safely if the patient has a remote history of a penicillin rash 20 years ago? The answer is most likely yes. Um, as trilonam does not cross-react with other beta-lactam antibiotics with the exception of one cephalosporin, they don't share the same structure. Carbopenem, really very low cross-reactivity with beta-lactams, even in pen-allergic patients. Most times we say, you know, if you're really concerned, you can give a smaller dose of the carbopenem than give the full dose. For most patients, you, there's such minimal cross-reactivity, you can go ahead and give the medication. Uh, fluoroquinolones not really often used in pediatric patients, but you do have this very distinct macular papular rash that can occur with patients. The macrolides aren't as immunogenic as the penicillins. You know, um, the true allergic reactions, especially the severe anaphylactic ones, are exceptionally rare. Uh, and there's no cross-reactivity between clonamycin and other macrolides. So if they've had issues with one, you're probably safe to give you know, E or adithromycin instead if you needed to. This is a study done in Turkey several years back looking at breaking down the characteristic of proven non-beta-lactam antibiotic allergy in the pediatric population. Here, they looked at characteristics of kids who were suspected of a non-beta-lactam allergy. So again, here they did both skin prick and intradermal testing and defined it as three millimeter size bigger than the control as a positive test. So here looked close to about 100 kids. They tested about 80 of them because some of them were diagnosed clinically based on the history that they were truly allergic and no testing were required. All skin uh, prick tests were negative. Um, the intradermal tests were positive for uh, clorithromycin, cipro, and uh, sulfobactrim in three patients. And out of the 82 patients that tested negative, only one patient uh, had a reaction on positive uh, challenge. Again, um, very, very rare. A common reaction in the, um, the you know, the gentamicins and uh, the aminoglycoside group is a contact dermatitis. Um, they tend to get uh, macular rash. However, the drug eruption, severe cutaneous reactions are uh, reported but very rare. Um, this is a reaction of vancomycin. Uh, when I was a fellow, I've been consulted several times. So um, the Redman syndrome. So essentially, it's an infusion rate-related reaction that's non-IgE mediated. You know, the, the kid gets a severe infection, they need vancomycin, and give them IV. Several hours in, they are covered with this diffuse urticarial rash. It's profoundly itchy. 
it really depends on the speed of invasion. Oftentimes, if you reduce it by 50 to 75%, they have to be there longer, but they won't itch. So you just say, hey, we're gonna reduce the rate. Most patients tolerate fairly well. It's not due to your classic type one allergic reaction. There is not drug-specific antibodies related to vancomycin, but it is one that we see, uh, I saw quite, quite a bit when I was in training. I'll briefly go over the uh, not and uh, the other agents because this is more common in the adult world. Um, I just like to say it's called NERD or AERD. Um, aspirin NSAID exacerbated respiratory tract disease in, in kids. Um, it's rare in kids less than five years of age. Your sinuses are still developing. Your frontal sinus hasn't matured, but it can be seen sometimes in teenage years and, and, and through puberty. So you have the Samter triad of nasal polyps. Here is a very classic looking um, uh, um, uh, nasal polyp. Um, and they do have, and they have recurrent nasal polyps, so they don't have a sense of poor sense of smell. They have uh, asthma, and they have cutaneous reactions to any NSAIDs, so aspirin or any non-selective COX inhibitors still develop um, urticaria, angioedema. And it's due to really the overproduction of um, leukotrienes uh, uh, on the right side. So when you have aspirin NSAIDs blocking your COX-1, COX-2 uh, pathway, reducing inflammation, you're driving the arachidonic acid metabolism to the right. So you have four, the five-lipoxygenase five producing more leukotrienes. Leukotriene synthase breaks down to LTC4D4. LTD, C4D4, E4, those are the mediators that causes uh, bronchospasm, that causes nasal uh, symptoms, congestion. So um, it really is due to a, sort of a shunting the pathway to the right. So how do you treat it? Well, the easiest thing is to avoid the drug. Um, so any NSAIDs that are COX-1 inhibitors, if you avoid them, patients do better. Um, they have significant less bronchospasm and cutaneous reactions. Um, if you use a selective COX-2 inhibitor, patients tend to do okay. And if you really have to for cardiac patients that need antiplatelet therapy, you can consider aspirin desensitization. Um, it's fairly involved. It takes one to two days. Most patients can be successfully desensitized. Uh, nowadays, most, some, patient, some clinics use oral aspirin. Uh, others use intranasal catarolac, but uh, it's a most a day and a half, a two-day procedure. You have to treat through symptoms, but you ultimately desensitize them, and they have to go on a pretty a significant dose, a minimum, a minimum 325 milligrams aspirin daily to uh, maintain their tolerance. And if they stop it for a couple of days, they can regain it. So. Very briefly, some other agents. Um, Protamine has been reported to cause anaphylactic reaction. It's uh, mixed with insulin to increase the duration of action. Um, uh, I haven't really seen any, uh, very few cases of it uh, when I was in training. Um, opiates is a big one. Um, so a lot of medications are promote allergic-like reactions because they directly stimulate your allergic cells, your mast cells, to degranulate and release mediators that cause reactions. This is through the non-IgM-mediated mechanism. Um, it's not allergic in the truest immune sense. Corticosteroids, topical ones, can cause uh, contact dermatitis. So in these cases, you pick one that's in a different R group, usually patient. If they had issues with tramcinolone, 
they may do okay with dexamethasone. Local anesthetics, so your amines and your amides, you know, in, in, in dental office. So these can cause uh, eczematous and pruritic rash with local uh, application. Again, these are non-IG mediated. Um, for many of these cases, you just find a different chemical structure group and most patients do okay. And radio contrast dyes, so these are fairly common. Again, this behaves like the opiates, so they directly stimulate your mast cells to fire and they cause uh, degranulation and, and urticaria and angioedema. And, and it, it's interesting here, they can occur in a delay manner, so some patients can have it hours to weeks after administration. Um, a lot of times I know the radiology uh, folks have a pretreatment regimen now to give them, you know, and H blockers as well as prednisone ahead of time. And sometimes it helps to choose a non-ionic uh, isomosmolar origin. They, those tend to be less stimulating for the mast cells. I'd like to thank you for your time. So um, these are just some pictures that remind me of where I've been. But you know, I moved to Connecticut uh, in July because my, my wife works here now as well. Uh, so I followed her here, but I've really grown to, uh, to like the, the Northeast beauty. So that was Acadia when we do some, you know, amateur hiking uh, on the bottom right. These are just pictures of St. Louis uh, that, that uh, well, during my time there. So thank you for your time and happy.